Well, good morning. There's a, a scene early in the movie Pinocchio. Everything goes back to Disney mostly in my life. There's a scene early in Pinocchio where Pinocchio the puppet becomes uh, Pinocchio the like half puppet, half real boy on his way to being a real boy. And the, the fairy that turns him from puppet into half puppet, half boy gives him uh, like a charge, right? To always let his... Am I the only one that's seen the movie? (laughs) Always let your conscience be your guide, right? He sings a song about it. Um, Which is like a fairly reliable maxim, if you will. Uh, So long as our conscience is being formed and shaped by the Holy Spirit, then we can always trust that our conscience is telling us the right thing. But what if, what if your conscience is just guilty? That's the question we're going to deal with this morning. What if you stand ultimately before the Lord and your conscience is not clean, but instead is guilty? There's a reason we say that someone seems like they have a guilty conscience. It influences the way we act and how it is that we behave. This passage this morning, we're going to work from Hebrews 9, verse 1 down to 14. And there's some difficulty in the passage because we've got to inhabit some spaces that are kind of foreign and unfamiliar to us. It involves the tabernacle and the stuff that's out there and the sacrifice that a priest would make. And so we need to make that clear. But the bottom line in this passage is that there's something that leaves your conscience imperfect and something that can cleanse your conscience. And if you've got that cleansed conscience, then the very last phrase in verse 14, there's something we can do. There's a way that we can live. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Often when you're reading in Scripture, there are passages, sometimes very lengthy passages. Usually they have to do with descriptions of the temple or descriptions of the tabernacle or descriptions of certain sacrifices. Places like Exodus, Leviticus, portions of Deuteronomy, even in 1 Kings, there's a long description of the temple. And it's just hard for us to picture what it is we're talking about. This Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 10 is one of those places. And so the first thing we need to do this morning is try to like engage our imaginations a little bit and see a certain space and try to see what is happening in a ritualistic, sacrificial kind of way. Then we'll go to a more familiar place, and that's the cross where Jesus died in the act that he did on our behalf. And then we'll get to really verses 13 and 14, which is where sort of the punch is in this particular passage. So um, that's the roadmap. That's the goal. We're working with the same main idea as we worked with last week. And that's this, that Jesus's superior commitment has fulfilled a new covenant for us. That was last week. We saw that in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. He's fulfilled that covenant in our place. And because of that, we've been ushered into a new kingdom. And that means we live a certain way. Let's read verses 1 through 5, and we'll try to engage our imagination a little bit here. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind uh, Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had a gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. 
The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Let's just, if you're like a real visual person, uh, maybe you're someone who's got a really good imagination, you could close your eyes. I just want to describe this place. If you're someone who's likes to draw, maybe it would help you to kind of try to draw this out. Maybe you've got a study Bible in front of you that would have a picture of the tabernacle that you could look at. But here's the space. Let's just try to see it. If you were wandering with Israel in the desert for the 40 years that they spent wandering around, you would come to a stop at certain times when the pillar of smoke and fire came to a stop. You stopped and you set up your camp. And the 12 tribes of Israel had very specific places where they were to set their tribe up. And in the center of all of that was this white, gleaming tabernacle. Now, all you could really see from the outside was uh, essentially like a fence that formed the border of that in perfectly white cloth. Inside of that was a courtyard. Any Israelite person could go into this courtyard. Now, they did so bringing a sacrifice because there in that courtyard was a bronze altar. Next to it was this gold wash basin that the priests would use. Most priests spent their entire lives performing their priestly ministry duties in this courtyard. They would receive the sacrifices that people brought, perform them according to Old Testament Levitical regulations, and then the people would leave. An Israelite person could not go beyond this outer tent, and most priests never went beyond, sorry, this outer courtyard. Just behind that altar was an entrance to the tent. The tent was 15 feet long, 15 feet tall, and 45 feet, or 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall, and 45 feet long. It mostly would have fit inside this room. Inside, it was divided in two. And so in the first room, which was called the holy place, or the outer tent, there were just two things on each side, or on each wall. On one side, there was a lampstand. Lampstand had three sort of branches that came off on each side, and it provided the only light inside the space. That lampstand was kept lit at all times around the clock. On the other side, there was a table that had these, what verse 2 calls, presentation loaves on them, 12 loaves of bread, one representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And every week, those loaves were rotated out. It would be the highlight of a Levitical priest's life to be chosen to minister inside that outer tent for one week. That was all that you could do, seven days. And it was your job inside that tent to keep the light lit and to rotate the loaves on the seventh day. That was it. You did that for one week, and then you came back outside the tent, and you never went back in. Also from inside that outer tent, you could see the veil that separated that holy place from the most holy place. Purple, blue, scarlet yarn went the whole 15-foot width, and it separated out what was the most holy place where the Lord's presence would dwell with his people from that holy place on the outside, which was ultimately separate from the courtyard. One priest, one time a year, would get to go in beyond that purple and blue and red curtain. In fact, if you were ministering in that outer room, you didn't even really dare look toward that curtain on the off chance that you happened to see beyond it into the most holy place and you were struck dead because you weren't supposed to see back in there to the presence of the Lord. Inside that room, we're told in uh, Hebrews 9, 1 to 5, and also in Exodus 25 to 30, where all this is laid out, there was this 
golden uh, stand for incense. There was also the Ark of the Covenant inside that room, made entirely of gold. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were three things. A little bowl holding a piece of manna. If you remember from Exodus, they were told to collect only what they could eat for a day because if you kept it overnight, it would immediately spoil. Well, one piece of that manna was preserved inside the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place for all of time. Also there inside the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff that budded, we're told. Think back to Exodus. The staff that Moses performed all the great miracles with, that's the one inside the Ark of the Covenant. And then the tablets that had the law, the Ten Commandments written on it. Those are inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is then covered by this mercy seat, also solid gold. Overshadowing the mercy seat was this cherubim. It was made of solid gold, like an angel that's looking down the cherubim of glory that's looking down, overshadowing the whole thing. That's all that's inside that inner tent, that holiest of places. And one priest can go in there one day a year. Look at verses 6 and 7. With these things prepared like this, the priest entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room. And he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people are the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So kind of see the layout of the space. Now let's see what happens inside there. This is from Leviticus 16. It's a sacrifice that's made on the Day of Atonement, the one day that the high priest would go back behind that curtain. For seven days, that high priest would prepare himself in the outer tent. He would practice what it was he was going to do on the Day of Atonement because you certainly did not want to get it wrong. He would make sure that he stayed away from anything that could potentially make him unclean in any kind of way. He would stay in the tent day and night. And on the morning of the Day of Atonement, he did final preparations. He ritually bathed his entire body, making himself clean, and then he put on the necessary garments. They're also described in Exodus 25 to 30. Certain robes, a white tunic, a white sash, a white head covering, the white signifying holiness, purity. Then he would step outside into the courtyard, and he needed to make two sacrifices on this day. One sacrifice for himself and his own sins, and one sacrifice for the sins of the people. The sacrifice for himself involved a bull. He would have a bull brought to him. He would place his hands on the head of the bull, and that act signified his sins being placed onto this particular animal whose blood was going to make atonement for him. He would then slaughter the bull and take that blood into the most holy place, the inner part of the tent, and he would sprinkle some of that blood down before the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would come back outside, and he would take some of that blood, and seven different times he would sprinkle it on that bronze altar that's outside. His sins atoned for. Now he would take two goats, and he would have to make a selection between these two goats. One would be set aside as a sacrifice to the Lord. One is going to be set aside as the scapegoat. The one that he's going to sacrifice to the Lord, he kills right there, takes some of the blood, mixes it with some of the blood from the bull that he sacrificed for his own sins, and he takes that blood back into the most holy place, sprinkles it on the ground, comes back outside, takes that mixture of blood and puts it on the horns of the altar and pours the rest of the blood out there before the altar. Then he approaches this second goat, the scapegoat, takes his hands, puts his hands on the head of the scapegoat, and he's got a very specific thing that he's supposed to say. He says that 
He's making confession for all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. Those are placed on the head of the scapegoat, which was then led away into the desert and released to signify the sins of the people being removed from them. At that, he would come back into uh, the outer court there, take off all the ceremonial garb, finish what needed to be done with the two sacrifices, and then, in kind of the high point of the whole deal, proclaim the covenant name of God, Yahweh, before the people, and they would all fall down prostrate before the Lord. That's what happened on the Day of Atonement. That's what's being described in verses 6 and 7. Enters with blood once a year, some which he offers for himself, and some which he offers for the sins of the people which are committed in ignorance. Assuming that all went well, collective Israel would let out a giant sigh because their sins of ignorance had been forgiven on the Day of Atonement. Anything that they didn't maybe know that they sinned, and so they didn't take an offering themselves, all of that has been forgiven. It's like we've wiped the slate clean, and we're moving forward. Hebrews 9, 1-7. What's the point? What's the point that the author is trying to make bringing all of this up? Three things. Number one, under the old covenant, access to the Lord was restricted. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place. Only certain priests could go into the holy place. Only certain priests could approach the, or only Levitical priests could approach the altar. Regular Israelite people could come into the court with their sacrifice and then stand there and watch and think to themselves, I can't ever go beyond here. I can't go and get into the presence of the Lord. My sin doesn't allow it. I'll never be clean enough. Under the old covenant, those rituals pointed to a future ultimate fulfillment. We're told in verse 13 that those sacrifices were done for a time until there would ultimately be fulfillment. At some point, those rituals would give way to the thing that they always pointed to which was the blood of Jesus Christ. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way up to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament and the work of Christ proclaims that death is the consequence of sin. Blood is necessary. So in these acts, when a priest is putting his hands on the head of an animal, symbolizing transferring someone else's sin onto that animal so that when the animal's blood is spilled, it would make atonement for that person's sin. The consequence of sin is death. The animal is dying in the person's place. But it's all pointing forward to the point at which Jesus would die in our place. Third point, those old covenant rituals could not fully remove the defilement of sin. That's what verse 9 is saying. Let's read 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. The way into the most holy place was restricted. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Their physical regulation and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. They could not fully perfect a person's conscience. All of Israel stands outside, watches as the priest makes a sacrifice for their sins of ignorance, but they did so with a guilty conscience. That's because Numbers 15 says that there are certain sins that can't be atoned for. What are those sins? What Numbers 15 calls sins of the high hand, which means that you knew you were sinning, 
and you did it anyway. Think about that. There were sacrifices available for sins that were made in ignorance or that were made in negligence or that were made from kind of unintentional means. But if you sinned in a premeditated fashion, there was no atonement for that. If we could not have our premeditated, intentional sins forgiven, we'd all be lost. And so the the average Israelite person stood on the outside of that tent hoping that this day of atonement sacrifice went the way it was supposed to go and yet knowing they were guilty. Even if that goes perfectly well and all of my unintentional, ignorant, negligent sins are forgiven, I'm really without hope here. I stand condemned. My conscience cannot be perfected by those. It's the same word perfect that we saw in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 18 and 19. The word there is teleo. You can't be made perfect, made clean, made right. They were aware of the fact that they would never be able to serve before the Lord. They would never be able to stand before Him perfect and clean. And so in faith, they cast themselves upon these rituals and looked to the Lord for His mercy, even though they could never wash away the defilement of sin. That's what's happening here in the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9. And the author lays it out so that he can make the statement he makes in 11 through 14. But... Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time. He doesn't have to go in and out. Not by the blood of goats and calves, he doesn't have to take some other sacrifice, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, sanctify the outside, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works? Why? Last phrase. So that we can serve the living God. What's the bottom line there? What's the point? Jesus' new covenant work provides unlimited access. He doesn't have to go in once every year. He goes in one time forever. And when he was crucified on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn, which signified that the way into the most holy place was available for everyone. And so now, if you receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, you are in him. And he's right there in the very presence of the Lord. And that means that's where you are. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the deepest reality of your life is that right now, in a spiritual sense, you stand perfectly clean right before the Lord in His presence at all times because Jesus has made the way for that. The veil tore in two. And so yes, you drive to work tomorrow. You go home and you go off to your chief's watch party or whatever. We change physical locations, but spiritually you are rooted, seated, right at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ as he makes intercession for you at all times. Access is unlimited thanks to Jesus Christ. Second, Jesus' new covenant work provides ultimate fulfillment. Blood was still required. His blood, the blood we remembered and celebrated when we took communion just a few minutes ago, perfect, holy, righteous, unblemished in every way, not the blood of an animal, but the blood of a son. The punishment for sin has always been death. In the Old Covenant, 
That was transferred from humanity to an animal when a priest laid his hands on the head of a sacrifice. And the blood of countless number of animals sacrificed at the altar in front of the tabernacle always pointed forward to the blood of the Son. Our sin transferred to Him. And now we don't stand before a man-made altar. Because of Jesus and the unlimited access that His fulfillment provides, we stand in Him in the very presence of God in the throne room of heaven. That's what the new covenant has done for us. We don't stand outside a tent thinking to ourselves, I will never be able to get into his presence. We are in Christ, in him, right there at the right hand of God. What does that mean? It means the last few words of verse 14. We've had our conscience cleansed from dead works so that we can serve the living God. No longer does a priest have to do it on our behalf. We do it. No longer does someone else have to go in before the very presence of the Lord. We go right in before the presence of the Lord. We serve now. Abraham Kuyper says it this way, that God rekindles in our heart the lamp that sin blew out. That's what's happened inside of us. We placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We received God's grace. We got all of those old covenant promises given to us thanks to Jesus Christ. Eternal life, blessed to be a blessing, representative people to the nations, a knowledge of God through the person of Jesus Christ, our sin forgiven, atoned for. We've been taken to be God's people. And when that happens, we're ushered into his kingdom. And now the law is written on our hearts. And that means at a base level that we are people who crave righteousness rather than sin. At a base level, we crave righteousness, not sin. We're not perfect in that, but it ought to mean that we love the things that God loves and we despise the things of sin. Our conscience has been cleansed. The word for cleansed there is katarizo. It's where we get our English word cathartic. Something is cathartic, it's cleansing, it's purifying. It feels like it purges something out of us. That's what's happened thanks to the death of Jesus Christ. And now we're this new covenant kingdom of priests. We serve in the very presence of the Lord. No one has to do it in our place, but it also means no one can do it in our place. We're called as followers of Jesus Christ to bring new kingdom realities to bear in a broken world while we wait for Jesus to come back a second time and usher in that new kingdom fully. This is the way Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. We stand before the Lord and we're free to serve him without hesitation. We need not live before him in our dead works. Instead, we can serve him with a clean conscience, one that stands on the perfection of Jesus. We live for the Lord, not in order to fulfill something, hoping that it will be enough. Instead, we serve the Lord knowing that in Jesus, we have all we need and we have nothing to lose. We serve him not with a need to try to make ourselves feel right, but because we know we've already been made right. Our conscience is clean. It changes the way we act before the Lord. I want to end this by being as practical as possible. 
We've been ushered into this new kingdom thanks to the new covenant. We're a kingdom, a nation of priests as God's people. And that means we serve before the Lord. We live out new covenant, new kingdom realities in a way that proclaim that we are Christ's people. Practically, how can we do that? Well, the first question might be, what do these new kingdom realities even look like? What does that mean? And so my suggestion would be, read the Sermon on the Mount. See what the kingdom looks like, what it means. It begins with the Beatitudes, and Jesus says that those who inherit the kingdom are humble, hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. They're persecuted, which is an odd ending place, but ultimately makes sense. Because thanks to new covenant realities, we don't have to worry if someone stands opposed to us. We don't have to worry about the fact that everything else that Jesus is going to say about living in the kingdom flies right in the face of the way the rest of the world lives. It's totally fine. We've got these new covenant promises that are so much greater than any of the acclaim or the acceptance of the world could possibly give us. And so, yes, some will be opposed to us, and that's totally okay. We're free to live as salt and light, to be free from hatred, free from lustful thinking. We're free to go the extra mile, to love our enemies, to give cheerfully and generously. We're free to not be anxious, to not be judgmental. We're free to be dependent on the Lord rather than dependent upon ourselves. Those are the topics in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what new kingdom living looks like. We're freed up to do that. What Jesus has done by fulfilling the old covenant is not made it so that we're just free from the law and we can live however we want. What he's done is that he's freed us to the law. You don't have to be shackled by it anymore. Your conscience is clean and you can live in obedience to the Lord. Serve before the Lord like one of those Old Testament priests, but you can do it with a clean conscience at all times. Every single one of us. Maybe just look at the life of Jesus. Read a whole gospel. In fact, I would even encourage you to sit down and read a whole gospel beginning to end in one setting. Why? Because what you'll come away with is that when it came to people, and we can talk about kingdom living through a lot of different lenses, but when it comes to people, the way Jesus lived is marked by empathy, not apathy. That's a mark of the kingdom. Empathy, not apathy. That we would look through the eyes of Jesus at the world. When we see the brokenness, when we see the hurts, when we see the pain, we would be people of empathy. We would move toward that rather than trying to ignore it. We would be moved to make broken things right rather than just let broken things be broken and go about our own business. Empathy rather than apathy. Now, I want to walk through what this means, and specifically how it is that through this church you could be involved in these kinds of kingdom-related things. I'm going to give you a wealth of information here about ministries and opportunities that exist within our church. Don't feel like you've got to scribble them all down. We're going to send out an email on Monday that's going to give you links for these things and ways that you could be involved. But what does it look like to be part of the kingdom of God and to work with the world, live with the world, minister before the Lord in the world through empathy rather than apathy. When you became a follower of Jesus, you were ushered into the kingdom of God. And now your primary allegiance is not the kingdom of America, though we are thankful for this country. 
Your primary allegiance is not the kingdom of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Your primary allegiance is not to Chief's kingdom. Your primary allegiance and what you ultimately live for is the kingdom of God. We're compelled by empathy to bring kingdom realities into the real world in all of its brokenness and in all of its hurt. I think there are kind of three ways we can think about this. We see Jesus, we see that he stands for spiritual life, that empathy causes him to move toward lost and broken people, which means this, that if we're going to bring kingdom realities to bear in this physical place, we should be moved by those who are far from the Lord, to the core of who you are. It should bother you that there are those out there who do not know the gospel. That there are thousands of whole people groups around the world that not only have never heard the gospel, but have no access to it, ought to move us. Rather than being apathetic and ignoring it, living in the kingdom, serving the Lord with this clean conscience, ought to mean that we're moved by that. Ways that you could do that here through this church. There is a course, it's called the Perspectives course. What it does is it helps build within Christians a world, uh, a kind of Christian worldview that sees the lost around the world and is compelled to have the gospel reach those people. That class actually starts tomorrow night. It's offered right here in Liberty. Uh, we host it every other year, but this year it's being hosted at Pleasant Valley Baptist Church. It starts tomorrow. Here's the good news. You can go to the first two classes for free and decide if you want to take it. So I would encourage you, Go and take that. Be moved by it. If you've got questions about it, find Brett Clemens. Brett, raise your hand. Brett works for Perspectives. He's a regional coordinator. He could answer all of your questions about what that class requires. Here's another option. You could connect with Joe Stewart, our missions pastor, who is building what we're calling an LCF missions sort of residency, where you're trained in how to share your faith, both in an evangelism sense and in a discipleship sense. You could go on trips, We've got a number of mission trips to various places where we're going to be training indigenous people to share the gospel in very hard-to-reach places. If that's something that piques your interest, take advantage of that. There's a meeting on February 24th where you can come and hear Joe kind of lay out all the various mission opportunities that are taking place over the course of this year. Maybe you say, I don't even know where to begin with this whole thing, Tim. Well, then I would encourage you to take the Discover Your Ministry course. Figure out what your spiritual gifts are. What are you passionate about? What opportunities are there within that that you could use those inside this church or outside the walls of this church? That's on February 22nd. That's an easy day to remember. Two, two, two. You could take that course. Figure out how it is that you've been wired to serve before the Lord. That's what that course is all about. Spiritual life. We should be compelled by empathy to stand and to act on behalf of spiritual life. Here's a second. We should be compelled by empathy to stand for physical life. Now that takes a lot of different forms. And there are a lot of different ways that you can do that within this church. This Sunday, you may or may not be aware, nationwide is what is known as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Our church partners with the Liberty Women's Clinic to help women... Uh, who are in crisis pregnancy situations, see the options that are available with them and to pursue having that child rather than pursuing an abortion. 
You could support Liberty Women's Clinic. You could volunteer at Liberty Women's Clinic. That's one way to stand for physical life. There are other ways to do that. You could be involved in adoption or orphan care. You could be involved in fostering, where there are physical lives for children right now who just need someone to love them and care for them and help them have a thriving, full, physical life. That's something you could do. There are these black bags out in our lobby. They're there every Sunday. When we mention them, they get a lot of attention. When we don't mention them, they don't get a lot of attention. But what they're for is that we partner with In As Much Ministry, which is a food pantry that helps provide food for people right here in our community who don't have the means to get it otherwise. And so you pick up one of those bags and there's a little slip in there with like the 10 greatest needs that InAsMuch has right now. Empathy means that we see people. We see them in their need. Grab one of those bags. See the needs that those people have. And it's as simple as going to the grocery store and taking it with you the next time and filling up that bag and bringing it back and then we take it over to in as much ministry. You don't even have to drive it there yourself. Empathy. We've partnered with World Vision over the last few years in order to try to raise awareness for the global water crisis. There are people around the world right now who struggle to survive because they don't have water. Empathy might compel you to get involved with that. Physical life. Last, I also think that kingdom living and Living with empathy rather than apathy means that we stand for not just spiritual life and physical life, but also the dignity of life. There are those around us that if we see them with empathy and compassion, we would see that their life circumstances are very challenging and they feel cast aside or pushed off and like nobody cares. Being kingdom-minded people means seeing those individuals and bringing dignity to their life. Let me give you some ways that you could do that through our church. You may or may not know this, but every Sunday we have a team of people that does ministry at the Oxford Grand. It's just across the highway on 152. It's an assisted living facility. Being moved into one of those facilities is incredibly emotionally challenging. Most often you get moved into one of those and you know that you're never going to really see outside of it again. You're never going to live outside of it again. You feel forgotten. Your children might live far away. Nobody comes and visits. We have a team of people that go over to Oxford Grand every Sunday just to love and do a little church service with people that can't make it to church somewhere else and care for them. And it's just a tangible way to say, I see you and your life matters. You're important. That's kingdom kind of living. Last year, we partnered with the Tim Tebow Foundation and other churches around Kansas City, and we're doing it again this year to host um, Night to Shine, which is a prom night experience for those with special needs. If you took part in that last year, you saw what a joy-filled experience it was for those VIPs with special needs to feel like for once they were being celebrated rather than separated. That's kingdom kind of living. I see you. Your life has dignity. I value you. One night, one night of your time can make that kind of impact in a person's life. Kingdom living. We host an ESL course. It's getting ready to start. There are a large number of people right here in our own community who live here and cannot speak the language. They can't communicate. Imagine how hard it would be to just go to the grocery store 
or to go to the bank and you can't talk to the person that's across the counter. We offer a course for free for people to come and to learn English and individuals within our church or volunteer. You don't have to be like multilingual to help out there. If you can make some hand motions and like love and care for a person whose life feels very challenging, you could be hugely instrumental there. That's dignifying for them. Someone cares enough to help me learn this language. We're instituting something here within our congregation that doesn't really have a great name right now, but we're calling constitutional or congregational care. It's an opportunity for individuals within our congregation to minister to one another. And so maybe you've walked through something very challenging in your life, a sudden illness, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child. Maybe you've walked through the loss of a job or you've walked through difficult financial times. Whatever the case might be, we're trying to compile a list of those individuals so that when someone else in our congregation is struck by those circumstances, we can pair them up with someone who can just sit across the table with them and say, I see you and I hear you. And I understand because I've been there. And I'm moved by empathy to try to help you. That's kingdom sort of living. Last, we've recently engaged in a ministry called Care Portal. What Care Portal does is that it partners alongside um, like the Division of Family Services. And so when a family is in a position where they might have a child removed from their home for something as simple as they don't have a crib or their living, current living circumstances aren't such that uh, it feels like that child is safe, that DFS can actually contact churches in this area and say, look, we can keep this child in their home with their family. They just need a mattress. And we can provide that. There, there's, our church is coming alongside that effort. That's dignifying to someone who's trying their best. And so we're going to send out an email a bunch of links, a bunch of information, kingdom living. That's what we want to be about as a church. You're free to give yourself to it. Your conscience is clean. You don't have to do it to prove yourself to the Lord that you're worthy. You're just free to do it because Jesus has already proven it on your behalf. His superior commitment to fulfill the covenant and grant us all of God's covenant promises makes Jesus worthy of this kind of living. The law is written on our hearts and makes us crave this kind of living. Our conscience is clean and makes us free for this kind of living, to stand before the Lord and serve Him. People of the kingdom, spiritually, physically, and for the sake of the dignity of life. We're going to close with a song that we've sang a few times, but it's been a little while. It's got like a call and response sort of feel to it. Um, But it asks the question, Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to take the seal and open the scroll? And then the answer is yes, the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He's David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. He is worthy. He's made us a kingdom of priests and we serve before him. Let's stand up and close in song.